0: Hi, and welcome to the Animal Voices radio show, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM co-op radio, CFRO, on unceded and ancestral swallowtooth Musqueam, and Squamish territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on Turtle Island. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021, and I will be your host, Grace Wampold, joined here today by our co-host, Allison Cole. Welcome to the show. For today's feature interview, we will be talking with George C. Hamilton, the chair of the Department of Entomology at Rutgers and the director of the graduate program in entomology there as well. His research is focused on IPM, or Integrated Pest Management, which is a much more sustainable and compassionate way to look at insects that might be living on your farm. However, this year is a very special year for a very specific type of bug called the magic cicada. This 17-year cicada lives underground most of the time, but comes up once every 17 years in order to mate, eat some xylem of a tree, and rest again for 17 years. While this might sound kind of simple or benign, the reality is that over a million cicadas can take up one acre of land. That's insane. When I was just a little kid, only five years old, the cicada infestation happened and it really impacted me. I became much more curious about wildlife, interested in bugs in a way that many young girls are not, and I think in many ways it created the young biologist that I am today. So I'm really excited to talk to Professor Hamilton and I hope you are excited to hear more about these very charismatic little bugs. Our second offbeat interview of the day Will be with daniel goldgut who's the ceo and co-founder of epilogue in his previous life he was a tax and estate planning lawyer for high and ultra high network clients but now he's on a mission to democratize estate planning for all canadians with his program epilogue so essentially daniel has created a way for us to think about He wants to make it easier for you to write your will and to consider what the world might look like if something were to happen to you. Many people forget about their companion animals when they write their wills, and that is really why he'll be talking with us today at Animal Voices. Many people forget that companion animals aren't seen the same way as your children by the law. So we talk a bit about what to consider when you're writing your will and why it's important to start estate planning now. Before we head into our episode, I also want to remind you guys that next week is the beginning of our fall fundraising drive. You might not have noticed, but my audio is a bit better today because I invested in a new microphone. And this microphone, as well as the entirety of our show, is completely funded by you guys, the people who listen to Co-op Radio. We don't have any big mega corporations helping us with their advertisements. We are completely dependent on our volunteers and on the people who are generous enough to donate to us during these fundraising drives. So check out Co-op Radio and consider becoming a year-round member, donating once a month, or doing a one-time donation. Because really, anything helps. So with that, let's head into this week's episode.
2: Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community
3: members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca.
0: For news this week, we'll start with a story coming from Beaver Creek, which is home to an Indigenous-led facility focused on helping individuals and families heal from trauma and addiction. The Kotzkemon Family Development Center is a peaceful family healing center that is unfortunately dealing with a battle between themselves and the Premium Cannabis Meds BC operation that plans to build a large industrial cannabis facility across the street from their healing center. Since 2017, the Kotzkemen staff and local residents have raised alarms about the potential impacts of this marijuana facility. Residents share concerns about the air and water pollution that could result from this grow being built. Marijuana is a very water-hungry crop and often is grown in remote forested watersheds, just like this one. Marijuana requires almost 22 liters of water per plant per day during the growing season which adds up to 3 billion liters of water per square kilometer of greenhouse grown plants between June and October. During the low flow period, irrigation demands for cultivation can exceed the amount of water flowing into a river system, which leaves very little water left to sustain aquatic life. Further, pesticides and fertilizers will run off into this watershed, causing changes and disruptions to the ecosystem, such as eutrophication, changing the distribution of certain species in that ecosystem, and damaging the salmon stock that this community depends on. Local environmental groups complain that grows often do overwhelm conservation efforts and in some cases disrupt ongoing restoration and making this work more dangerous. While I don't think there's anything wrong with marijuana use, And while I'm not trying to suggest that anyone should demonize the use of marijuana, it is important to consider that any plant grown on an industrial scale has consequences for our ecosystem. I feel very lucky to live in a place where marijuana is decriminalized, but we have to consider what communities are being displaced by this growing industry. To hear more on this subject, I'll share a link to the GoFundMe as well as the petition on our web post and another article if you want to read more. In other news, a group of grade 9 girls with a passion for animal rights have won first prize in the local sustainable development challenge, earning themselves $5,000 to make their idea come to life. What's their idea? They're trying to eliminate animal dissection in their schools. The girls partnered with the BCSPCA and Society for Humane Science, which helped them develop their idea. Most of their budget will go towards technologies, apps, and programs to use for their school so they can give students the same, and in many cases, a better level of education. It's so exciting seeing young people trying to make a positive impact in their community in a way that can save so many lives. I remember when I was a senior in high school and I refused to dissect, the whole dissection was actually for no credit. The assignment we were given was knowing the internal anatomy of a fetal pig for AP biology. So I was able to teach myself the anatomy of the pig through coloring books and diagrams much more efficiently than my peers who decided to go ahead and disembowel that corpse. So let's try to save a few lives and not promote dissections. The final news segment that I wanted to share with you guys today is about the sale of spiky armor for small dogs following this string of animal-wildlife encounters in Metro Vancouver. Recently, there was a cougar being euthanized in Port Moody. And you've seen a lot of divisive language used by media outlets about this instance, where the cougar essentially attacked and took a German Shepherd puppy. Now what hasn't been shared is that this happened at night. A officer brought their puppy into the woods for training in the dark and a cougar grabbed the young pup, broke their neck, and took them into the woods. So we've seen this spiky armor come out and into popularity because a lot of dog owners are concerned for their companions. They wanna make sure that no large animals are going to attack them out on hikes. But I think the really important takeaway here is that we should not be walking our companions at night in forests. Places like Stanley Park are habitats for predators that can pose serious risks to both humans and our companion animals. Especially between the months of January and March, these animals are far hungrier than they would be In the end of the summer where they've just had access to a lot of prey rather than buying jackets for your dogs really consider what would be a safe space to walk your animal if you want to avoid these types of conflicts while cougars are quite scary we do need them in our ecosystems and it's important that we try to avoid having these really sad calls or euthanizations of individuals that are really just trying to survive. Port Mooney pet owners should please try to be a little bit vigilant after these attacks that have happened in Coquitlam, Port Moody, and Anmore. One thing you can do to help is tell your friends to please do not feed the wildlife and consider going to the Fur Bears or donating to the Fur Bears to help support this cause. Hi, Alison. Uh, good afternoon. How How's your day been? Well,
4: good afternoon. I've had a good start to the day today because I finally got to watch a film that has been much anticipated. It came out on March 24th on Netflix and has been uh, in the top 10 of trending films in Canada this week. That film is called Sea, Seaspiracy. Now if you're familiar with Cowspiracy it's actually produced by the same producer and filmmaker as the film Cowspiracy which which basically is an exposé of of the animal agriculture industry now Seaspiracy doesn't it takes a step aside from that and you know It's great that we have these films that speak about uh, land animals. We have a lot of information and a lot of exposés about that. But when do we ever hear about the ocean animals, the animals that live in the sea, the fish, the dolphins, the whales, turtles? We never really do. And in my, you know, over 11 years of being of working on the animal voices show it's something that even i f- i feel that our show has neglected to really tackle and and maybe that's because it just doesn't seem to be an issue that a lot of people are thinking about whereas i found out today that up to 2.7 trillion fish are killed every year on a global scale. And that is not an insignificant thing. And so this film, it's made by British filmmaker Ali Tabrizi. He sets out on a mission to figure out what it is that people should know about the global fishing industry. And first of all, he thinks that it's because whales are still being killed, which whaling was banned in 1986, but it's still being done by the Japanese and the Faroese. And he he learns about that and we learn about the Taiji dolphin industry and how that's connected. Why they're killing so many dolphins during the season when the purpose of the Taiji dolphin industry is to actually kidnap the dolphins to put them into all kinds of sea aquariums around the world. We know about that, but it goes further than that and there's just so much I like this is like an action adventure film, but it's real life and he actually comes into danger as we see and a lot of scrutiny by authorities and the different places around the world that he travels to to uncover the all these very dark and secret methods of the fish industry which a lot of them are illegal so
0: what spoke to you about the film Grace? Interesting point too you just brought up about it that it's you know it's it's an action adventure in some ways and I think that speaks to how little we know about the ocean we as land mammals don't think about the sea very much and it's so unregulated which they show you at the beginning of the film how little of it is actually protected barely 3% and that's most of the planet that's not protected so it starts to feel overwhelming the film in how upsetting it is the staggering numbers of individuals that both humans and non-humans that suffer from this industry but it's it's real because so little of the ocean is regulated And that's why it's so important, you know, we often talk about fish as something that's maybe a little more okay, quote unquote, to consume. I think that's just because we're so disconnected from sea animals and and we don't communicate the same way as them. This This is huge. This is an environmental, social problem. Right. And I
4: think I think another reason why we people tend to think that it's okay to eat fish is because of the sustainability word and all these labels like Ocean Wise that we have here in Vancouver. And there was another big one that was spoken about in the film dolphin safe, which I wasn't even aware of that term. And nothing is dolphin safe as we found out. And it really I mean, it showed, you know, the filmmaker wanted to do a really good job as a documentary filmmaker and get everyone's side of the story, right? He was speaking to uh, fishermen who killed whales or speaking to as many sides as possible. But so many people or organizations that he requested interviews from turned down or didn't respond to an interview. And when he went to their offices to request an interview, he had to wait half an hour and then was told to get out. And this was that one nonprofit that actually is a sustainable fish label. So you know, just like we discovered in Cowspiracy, there really is a concern. when it comes to the ocean fisheries and everything about that
0: exactly it's it's a huge industry and it's funded by our government and it's subsidized by by our government and especially here in british columbia the fishing industry is something that is the backbone of this province in many ways and a lot of sustainable funding goes to fish a lot of sustainable funding goes to finding ways to harvest more salmon and more kill more individuals but you know, they're, As we've learned, 99% of them are gone. Right. And I was, sh- I was shocked to learn that this is
4: actually worldwide. It's a $35 yeah. billion dollar per year worldwide subsidy that goes into the fishing industry, which also happens to be the same amount needed to combat world hunger. And this whole film is an eye opener. I really hope people watch it. It's on Netflix and definitely worth an hour and a half of your time. There's a lot more that the film went into. And we hope to do more of a feature on this later as well, because there's just so much stuff here that people
0: need to know. This is going to be really huge to help people go from pescatarian to vegan. So keep an eye out uh, for more on that. 100.5 100.5 means non commercial, listener powered, community radio. 100.5 means music, public affairs, I have a dream, and arts programming.
3: I wish I loved the human race. I wish I loved its city face.
0: You won't find anywhere else on the radio dial. 100.5 is not owned by a huge corporation. We are owned and operated by people like you, by your community. CFRO Vancouver Cooperative Radio. Find our complete program schedule at coopradio.org. And now I will be talking to Daniel Goldgut, co founder of Epilogue. Here it is. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, It's really cool to talk to you about something that I think a lot of our listeners don't generally um, think about. Especially when it comes to adoption, because it's there's been a lot of people adopting animals, especially through COVID. So, what is Epilogue? Uh,
3: well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here as well. So, what motivated me to start Epilogue is I'm a lawyer, and I was practicing in Toronto doing corporate tax and estate planning work. And through that process, it became very clear to me that people just struggle to get their wills completed. Uh, a lot of people know they need them, but Uh, they just don't get them done. And so there's a lot of reasons out there and a lot of factors, uh, time, cost, inconvenience, and it's the kind of thing that people just are happy to continue procrastinating. So me and my co-founder Aaron, who are both estate planning lawyers, thought that if we could simplify the process and automate the process, that we could empower people to actually create these very important documents.
0: So then who do you think should consider using Epilogue? Because Uh, It is something that I think a lot of us procrastinate and, yeah, who's this application for?
3: So I would say at its simplest, every Canadian adult should have a will. There's certainly times in your life when you're more likely to make one or where it feels like there's a little bit more urgency. So we find that uh, people uh, make wills when there's a major life event. So when you get married or divorced, when you have a child, pets is another big one. It's these times in your life where all of a sudden you feel like it's it's more than just you. The reality is it's, it's it's applicable for everybody. So having a will is going to ease the burden and the stress and the difficulty that family and friends feel after someone passes because your wishes are on paper and it is very clear what you want to happen, who you want to be in charge of managing your estate and managing that process, who you want to name as guardians for minor children and for pets, and what dishes distribution you want to happen.
1: So
0: what makes Epilogue different from other applications that might help you prepare your will?
3: So I think it, it really all comes back to this fact that Aaron, my my partner and I are both estate planning lawyers. So this is the the area that we practiced in. We were drafting wills every day for clients. Uh, a lot of the clients that we dealt with at the, at the firm that we were at were high net worth, and so we were doing really sophisticated planning. And then also for our friends and family and, and colleagues and contemporaries, we were doing more basic planning. And so with that experience, we we really understand the legal side of things, understand what what's important to be in that document, uh, what are the questions that we – need to ask and how do we need to ask them to make sure that we really get the right information and and that the document really reflects someone's wishes Uh, and not just what they're telling us but understanding sort of drawing on our experience for what's what's really important to to pull out and make sure uh, comes through for that person.
0: Mm. Yeah um, growing up my dad was a trust and estates lawyer And so I think that the advice I got given as a kid, I never realized how funny it was because there was things like he told me to never buy a plane and to never buy a boat and to never adopt a parrot (laughs) because parrots (laughs) will outlive you, (laughs) which were things that I just, you know, I didn't understand exactly (laughs) what meant by that. But what are those questions you think that people forget to ask themselves when they plan their will if they don't have that context of being... A trust and estate's lawyer or having one for a father.
3: Yeah, I mean that, that that is interesting advice for sure. I've never heard any of that. I was never in the market for a parrot to begin with, so I think that one of the things that's really important for people to think about is um, sort of I'll call them uh, contingencies to some respect, which is that in your will, it's, you know, it's really important. To name an executor so who's the person that you want to be in charge of of, of managing your estate and in addition to naming an executor you should name an alternate executor so second in line so if the first person you named is unable or unwilling to act who do you want to step into that role Uh, and the same is true for guardianship so for for children or for pets who do you want to be the person um, that is responsible and if that person is unable or unwilling to act, who's the alternate that you want to, to have ready? Uh, and then with beneficiaries as well. So who do you want to leave your stuff to? And if if one of the people that you name uh, is not alive when you die, well, th- then where do you want it to go? Uh, and so it's important to sort of plan a few levels down, not just to look at who are the people that are around right now and what's the decision that I want to make it immediately, uh, to have some sense of, of the importance of um or planning ahead um, if things should change.
0: I know that animals are seen quite differently under the law. So could you tell me a bit about pet guardianship and how animals are seen, legally speaking?
3: Yeah, it. I mean, it's really interesting because uh one of the, the members on our team, Amanda, who is amazing and who is a, a dog owner and a dog lover. Uh, in the early days when I was uh, chatting with her about pet guardianship, uh, she wasn't thrilled to hear that in the eyes of the law, pets are considered property uh, in the way that your other property is. So when it comes to your will, while we use the terms pet guardianship, really what you're doing is you're making a gift of your pet to a specific person so it's obviously not akin to you know leaving your watch to your friend or or a piece of art to someone but under the law it's, it's looked at in the same way so your pet is property and you're making a gift of that property to someone now we know that 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 having a pet uh, or, or or receiving a pet is very different than receiving a painting and so For that person, they're not just getting a thing, uh, they're they're getting an animal. um, And that comes with certain responsibilities. We use the term pet guardianship because that's what people understand and think about. But in the eyes of the law, what you are really doing in your will is you are making a gift of your pet to a specific individual.
0: So then what other options do people have if they're not sure who they want to be the guardian for their companion animal? Once you've decided on your guardian, what other options do you have to ensure that your companion is being taken care of uh, once you're gone?
3: Pets come with costs. Oftentimes what someone will do is that in addition to making a gift of the pet to that person, they'll actually make a a monetary gift as well. And so they will say, uh, you know, if John takes my dog, then I also want to make a gift of this amount of money to John. To help for the care of of my of my dog, um, that can change, of course, depending on what kind of animal we're talking about, right? Like the the costs associated with with having a horse are very different than than a dog and very different than a parrot. What what were the costs associated with this animal during my lifetime, and the person that I'm naming um, to to be the guardian for my pet? What's their financial situation? So you might look and say they're fine. Right. Like this is this is not going to be uh, an issue for that person to to continue to to love and care for my animal in the way that I did. And, and that person will be totally um, fine and happy to absorb the costs that are associated with it. And for others, you say, you know what, that person wouldn't be able to sort of provide the care that I would want them to absent some monetary gift, some amount of money to make sure that this is not a burden on them, and so it's important to think through those things. Who is the person that you are uh, naming as the guardian and and having a conversation beforehand to say you know are you are you in a position i mean both emotionally to 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 handle this and to and to care for and love uh, this animal in the way that I did um, and financially um, what are the things that you might need in order to say that you're now comfortable to take on that responsibility?
0: do you know anything about how often this is overlooked
3: yeah so there are some statistics out there that only i believe the statistics are only seven percent of people actually have a plan in place for their pets
0: wow that's crazy yeah i mean i think too with COVID, i think a lot of us are trying to plan ahead and realizing that there are things that we need to get done, and this is this is one of those big things, planning a will. But, I mean, what suggestions would you have for someone starting that process or adopting a companion animal or kind of in that pivot point in their life?
3: Yeah, I think really the suggestion is it's important to think about it, so be conscious of it. It's in some ways similar to having children, which is... When you have children or when you uh, adopt a pet, you need to consider not just what what this is going to look like a month from now or three months from now. you got to look like well out into the future. And so uh, am I ready and and capable of caring for this animal um, or this child really right now at this point in my life and in in a few years and beyond? and, And what should happen when I'm no longer around? Is there, is there someone else, you know, is, is there a spouse or a partner where you say, you know, if I'm not around that person, will continue to um, care for and and be responsible for, you know, children or animals and then with a view beyond that. So it's about thinking about it, being cognizant of it, and then actually sort of taking those positive steps to do something about it. So to put your wishes down on paper it's just really important to to understand that this is something that you you should be thinking about, and then and to go out and do something about it.
0: So, if people are interested in using Epilogue, uh, how can people connect with you?
3: Yeah, so you can find us online. Epiloguewills dot com is the website. E p i l o g u e w i l l s dot com. And when you get to the website, we've got a great learn center where you can go and and taken a lot of information there. Uh, If you're ready to get started into the process, you can click on the button that says get started and it'll walk you through a series of questions to gather some information about uh, you, your family, uh, and then pull out some decisions that you have to make. Uh, Right now, Epilogue is available in Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And we are continuing that uh, expansion uh, to other parts of Canada as well. I think people will be surprised to see how simple and straightforward it can be. I mean, people really build this up in their head as this thing that's gonna be awful to do, like an awful experience. And really, you know, wills come down to a few basic elements uh, and a few basic decisions that you're making. And so I think once people start to engage and interact and, and walk through those questions, they'll realize that it's not quite as daunting as they thought it was going to be.
0: It, yeah, so it's, it's really cool to see an updated version of this concept. Um, but is there anything else that you would like to add today?
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, for a long time, people, when they thought about wills, they thought that they, they should wait until that point in time in their life when they were ready to make sort of that one perfect will. So when I'm, done having all my children or when I have a certain amount of money in the bank, that's the time when I'm going to go out and make the the will that sort of captures what my wishes are, and then I'll never go back to it again. That's just going to be the will that I make, and that is the will until the day I die. And what we think is really important is that people look at wills as, as a document that is is meant to change over the course of your life. So you can start the process at, at a particular time in your life and create a will that reflects your wishes today. And if in two months or two years or 20 years, your circumstances change, you should feel really comfortable to go back and change your will. So if the person that you name today to be the guardian for your pet, uh, if in six months, you no longer think that that's the right person, you should make that change. Um, and and the, the the one will you create is not meant to be forever. It's meant to to, continue to evolve as you do and reflect your circumstances and your wishes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's rare that circumstances don't change. And I've seen that a lot as well with the companion animals, young people adopting a cat, for example, and then maybe they move out of country or out of province. And you do have to think ahead. So this is something that I wanted to talk about on the show. So thank you so much for coming on and talking.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.
0: Uh, have a great day.
3: You too. Right.
1: You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories.
0: Welcome back from the break. We are about to head into my interview with George Hamilton, professor of entomology at Rutgers University to talk about the 17 year periodical cicada, Brood 10, that is emerging in the Princeton, New Jersey area this summer. We don't get to talk about bugs a lot on the show. So for me, this is a real treat. And beyond that, this is the event of my lifetime. These broods only emerge every 17 years. So for me, the emergence of cicadas is a great opportunity to reflect on the past 17 years of my life and to look forward, to be excited about the next 17 years and the next opportunity to meet these cicadas once again. So enjoy our conversation about cicadas. Here it is.
2: Hi. Hello.
0: This is a subject that I am really excited about, and a lot of the listeners are from Vancouver who have never even heard about these types of broods and infestations. So.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So, of course, there are over 3,200 species of cicadas worldwide, but I wanted to start with just what are periodical cicadas and what makes them so interesting.
2: Okay, so periodic. Cicada is really no different than any other cicada species. have similar life cycles. They The juvenile stages, the nymphs live in the ground, feeding on uh, roots of trees and other woody plants. And then they emerge um, at one point, um, mainly just for the purpose of um, molting into the adult stages, mating so that the females can lay um, eggs for the next generation. Um, It takes a couple of weeks to occur, and then we will not, in this case, see the adult cicadas um, for another 17 years in our area. And so this year, we're having Brute 10, which in the east is one of two large ones. Um, Here in New Jersey, it is actually the largest one. And uh, it's going to come out of the ground um, probably the first or second week of june maybe a week earlier depending on how our temperatures are and um, in some areas um, especially in the princeton new jersey area there will be hundreds of thousands of them out um, within that two week period
0: wow um yeah i grew up in princeton and the last time the brood occurred i was a child uh, and so we would have buckets and buckets and save all of the shells and put them on our shirts. Um, oh, okay.
2: Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so for a lot of people, um, and for me as well, the concept of brood of brood was interesting. So why are there all these different broods of cicadas?
2: Okay. Um, well, um, they're they're really not unlike any other um, of the cicada species. So the other one that we have here in the east is the annual cicada or some people call it the dog day cicada because of when it comes out. Um, it comes out every summer in July into August and it's up in the trees singing just like the periodicals trying to, the males trying to attract mates. Uh, it has a much shorter life cycle um, depending on the species. It's anywhere between three and five years and they, just, they come out every single year. Now, we don't see that with the uh, 17-year cicada. So a brood just means that it refers to when the adults are coming out of the ground. And, and we have um, species here um, in North America that they can actually have a 13-year cycle with some of the species, and the other ones have a 17-year. And hundreds of years ago, uh, we had uh, a brood every single year. And or a, an emergence, I guess is a better way to say it, every, every single year. And as we uh, developed, we take down trees and we remove what the juvenile stages um, feed on. And so we have actually lost broods because of development. And so we're going to have brood 10 this year. Our other big one is brood 2. Um, in the next couple of years, there'll be other broods that will be coming out in places like Ohio and other places in the Midwest. So this just happens to be the big one for the East Coast.
0: 13 and 17 years are very specific numbers. And uh, I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners why they come out in 13 and 17 year cycles regularly.
2: Well there there's a, a lot of theories and probably the the one that I would take most stock in, although I'm not the expert, um, is that it is a way to avoid predation. if If you are only present as an, at least on the adult stage once every 17 years, it's hard for anything else to evolve to be able to feed on you because there's not a regular food supply.
0: I've also heard some theories about the, how both of those numbers are prime and how that uh, disallows overlapping. Is there any validity in that?
2: Uh, honestly, I don't know. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, because if it's 17, then you wouldn't have those numbers don't overlap because there's no, some, nothing can be divided by that, right?
2: Oh, you're right. Okay, I see what you mm. say. I It's probably just an artifact. Mm. <laughs>
0: So when they live underground, do you know basically why they stay underground for so long?
2: Probably related to food Food source. Might not be a, a high-value food source, and so it just takes a long time um, to develop in that juvenile stage. And again, it's a way to avoid predation because they're going to be most visible when they're adults.
0: Uh, and so what are they mostly feeding on?
2: Um, roots of hardwood trees, I would say, so things like a, oaks and maples and and so others hardwood trees
0: and how many I guess, just to give our listeners kind of a some kind of image in their head, how many can you, we expect to emerge this year?
2: Well, assuming that we haven't destroyed habitat um. In certain areas like Princeton, I mean, it's really hard to estimate how many came out each time. And so you're from Princeton. You probably know where Princeton State Park is between 27 and Route 1. Um, We probably, I went down to that location maybe a half a dozen times during the emergence. And every time I was there, there were literally hundreds of them coming out of the ground. Uh, during the day. Oh,
0: that's incredible. I can imagine yeah. that sight.
2: Yeah, and they were, they were all over the f- foliage. Um, so they crawl out of the ground up onto foliage, and then they uh, split their exoskeleton, their outer skin, uh, much in a way that a, that a uh, butterfly um, comes out of a chrysalis. And so they split their skin, and the adult comes out of that skin, and then they hang upside down on the foliage. Waiting for their their wings to expand and for their body to harden just like a butterfly does
0: Yeah, so when you see the a like a white cicada that's between the adult stage they've just lost their shell
2: right right that's the newly emerged yeah and they're cool looking they're creamy white and they have red eyes and, and then they change to a, a bluish black and o- orange wing veins Uh, it's quite a remarkable color change
0: and that is interesting to say talk about you know the change of how many trees are in the area because I know since the last uh, emergence there were obviously sandy occurred um, a lot of trees Mm -hmm. down in the area and I know there's also concerns for a lot of the ash tree populations
2: yeah i i don't know specifically if they feed on the roots of ash trees but you're absolutely right we um all well, three four years ago we we're, were invaded by the emerald ash borer and it has been devastating our ash trees just like it has everywhere else um in the eastern part of the united states
0: so do you think that sh- people should like, is there any kind of suggestions or anything that you suggest people do this year um, considering the emergence as far as their gardens or how they manage their lawns?
2: Well, it's not going to impact their lawns, and it's probably only going to impact um, woody, potentially woody ornamentals, especially um, if you've planted a new tree within the last couple of years. Um they go after the tender shoots and so the younger the tree the bigger impact that's going to have on them Uh, we don't really suggest spraying any insecticides to control them because if you're in an emergence area they are going to come out of the ground every single day for a couple of weeks they also are very good flyers the adults can fly up to two miles a day so if you spray today you're going to have to spray the next day or, or you know, every couple of days to, to um, kill all of them. And, it, and what we're really trying to prevent is the females egg-laying behavior. So when they lay their eggs, um, they lay the eggs on the undersides of, of soft new shoots on the trees. And they make a slit with their ovipositor on the underside and they lay an egg and then they move towards the apical part of the branch and and make another slit, lay an egg. And they do a series of that. And eventually the egg is going to hatch and the the nymphs either drop to the ground or they crawl down the tree to the ground and then burrow into the, into the soil. Uh, But that egg laying behavior, uh, starting at the point where the first egg is laid, that shoot is going to die towards the end of the shoot because of that behavior. And so that's what people, um, are concern, should be concerned about so if you have a, a young tree or a particularly sensitive shrub woody shrubs um, what we recommend is you cover it with something like burlap so that the females can't get at those tender shoots
0: that's actually really helpful advice i think that for any master gardener or anyone considering planting a tree this summer they might want to delay that
2: Delay till next fall right so I planted a a new dogwood tree in my backyard and I'm going to cover it I'm not in a high area but we did have a few 17 years ago so just to be safe I'm going to cover it
0: and they can certainly fly far enough it sounds like too
2: yes (laughs) Yes.
0: I was also curious just about their call. They have a really specific kind of maraca sound. And if there's any specific reason they have this strong rattle or...
2: Well, the rattle is, is mainly because of the way they produce it. They have a membrane, the males, on, on their uh, dorsal side um, that they are able to vibrate very, very quickly and that's what's making the noise and so it, it, the vibration is what you're hearing
0: mm-hmm. and i know a big part of this uh is also that you know evidently these are really harmless insects most for the most part as, besides how they can flag trees right but to they have no poison they're definitely benign in other, any other way so they obviously come out because that there's safety in numbers um do you know anything about how it interacts with the bird populations whether or not they're still considered like a high value food source for certain birds in the area
2: Oh I'm I'm sure there's going to be some birds that will be opportunistic and feed on them that wouldn't surprise me at all
0: I've heard some things that really in many ways their numbers and their sound alone can ward off birds um that they still really aren't predated on much but it also could just be that they're not familiar.
2: Right. So the decibel level um, is is going to be quite high <laughs> when, they're, when they're out. Very high. In fact, um, you drown out a radio unless you turn it up really, really loud the last time driving through Princeton.
0: It's just such an incredible time and such an incredible natural phenomenon that I think so few people know about in the world and... I obviously know that a lot of people don't love bugs, but it's just, it's so hard to, it's just so magical seeing, like, not even be able to use your bicycle. There's so many bugs around you in areas like Princeton. I just find it to be a very fascinating subject.
2: Yeah, my, my counter to that is this is one of the unique things in nature, and you, everybody should, if you have a chance to see it, you'll have to go see it once just to, to, to see what's going on because it's amazing. So I'll be taking all of us, our undergraduate entomology students, hopefully, well, that will be a little hard, I guess, because most of them will be gone for the summer. But all, definitely all of our graduate students, we're going to make trips down to the Princeton area to see what's going on, because I know none of my students um, have seen this before.
0: Yeah, and Rutgers is a big school. I mean, it's a pretty international uh, cohort, I assume, in your in your graduate student class.
2: Uh, it, yeah, we we do. Um, we have oh, about half of our gr- undergrad our graduate students are are uh, international students. And of course, grad students stay around all year long. They don't go home in the summertime like the undergraduates.
0: Um, so, if you'd like to talk about your personal research as well, I know that you mostly work in integrated pest management. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Right. So my research, and since probably the early 2000s, has been targeting um, invasive species. And so I uh, have spent a good deal of time um, with a lot of other people here um, in um, the U.S. and also in Canada uh, working on developing management methods for the brown marmorated stink bug that invaded us in the, in the 2000s. Um, also, um, I do work with conservation biocontrol for some of our agricult- other agricultural pests. And uh, our newest one that we're, my lab has started working on is the um, spotted lantern fly, which you don't have yet in Canada, and you don't want it. <laughs>
0: what is it uh, generally... Go towards what is it attracted to?
2: Oh, well, it, it has oh, almost a hundred different host plants. Um, it's like the stink bug, it, it it likes to feed on things like walnuts, mm-hmm. and it feeds on wild grapes, and it feeds on maples, and it will feed on a tree of heaven, uh, which actually is another invasive that's um, of Asian origin that shouldn't be here, but it's everywhere. It occurs. Especially as the adult, as adults, they congregate um, in very large numbers, and it, it's a leafhopper. that's about an inch and a half long and it secretes a lot of honeydew that that causes all kinds of problems. Agriculturally um, the only crop so far where it's had an impact is um, as adults in grapes and there there is evidence that it can reduce yield and in some cases um, kill the plants um, by making them less able to survive the wintertime. I
0: I just really think entomology is a very special subject and especially as it relates to our agriculture systems and And the sustainability of our food systems how we talk about invasives and don't always think about the less charismatic animals um, when we talk about sustainable agriculture and conservation how something like just a beetle that even might not be invasive might be local to the area um, we're seeing here with a lot of old growth trees so large emergences and less mortalities per year of things that aren't necessarily invasive but now look like invasives
2: oh well that depends on how you define invasive I have this discussion in my ag entomology course that I teach every year a native insect can absolutely be invasive Mm -hmm. Um, basically by definition it's an organism that causes some kind of economic or um, ecological disrupt or damage And so, yeah, natives can be, and most people assume that it's only non-native. So, like, the brown marmorated stink bug was Asian and was imported, but if it had come here and never caused any problems, it wouldn't technically be invasive. It'd just be non-native.
0: Which is interesting, too. I mean, I guess the the word invasive is a a misnomer, and in conservation at any level, where you're talking about mammals or insects that... It isn't always a fair word to use,
2: right? Right. Technically speaking, um, if honeybees uh, <laughs> did some damage, they could be considered invasive because they're definitely non-native.
0: Yeah, I actually really. Val- I'm so happy you said that. That was my my big interest, just because honeybees are, to me, in many ways, kind of this symbol of colonization, since it kind of went anywhere. Uh, people from Europe decided to settle. And
2: long long before that, they can can trace um, the um, management of bees for things like pollination and production of honey all the way back to ancient Egypt.
0: And I guess some could argue that in many ways, since they are disrupting native bee populations, that it has invasive kind of outcomes, depending on where you are.
2: I'm not aware of anything where they are out-competing. I'm more aware of what we're doing to the, all the all the bees and other pollinators with um, our, our use of certain insecticides, those kinds of things. But um, but I guess it depends on um, are they out-competing things like bumblebees. So when I think of bees, I think of solitary bees. And they're probably not having any impact on solitary bees humans are probably having more impact on them.
0: Yeah. I always heard that basically because bees have, they have mites and they can spread their disease to native species.
2: Oh, okay. okay. So if you're thinking about it in terms of that, you're talking about the tracheal and the more, da- the more um, hazardous, dangerous one for honeybees, the tracheal mites. Uh, I'm sorry, the varroa um, mites, right? And so when the, the commercial hives got um, infested with those mites, they did actually get transferred over into the wild population as well, and uh, caused lots of decimation of wild honeybees here in North America as, as well.
0: Anything else you want to share as far as your research or what to expect this summer? anything you want to add
2: uh no uh, other than just reiterate that this is going to be an amazing thing that's going to occur and and even if you are afraid of insects you still ought to go see this for the first time just to see it you never know it may change your view yeah
0: it's true i mean they're quite beautiful their wings are beautiful their red eyes and it truly is beautiful, and obviously I'm 3,000 miles away, but, you know, assuming if I can get my shot, this is something that, like, I would get on a plane to go see. If anyone's able to drive to Princeton, the Princeton area, really, I would say you should consider going to see this emergence, because yeah. it's... And,
2: and, yeah, I would encourage people to do that, whether they've had a shot or not, because it's an outdoor affair. It, That's true, it, yeah. You <laughs> didn't have any problems, social distancing.
0: I don't think you can spread it to the bugs either. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, so thank you so much. Um, Do you want to spread any way that people can get in contact with you or read more about your research?
2: Uh, They can just go to entomology.ruckers.edu, and they can find my website through our departmental website.
0: Yeah, there are maps available to show you where each brood is, but this is definitely, I, I'm pretty certain it's the largest of the broods.
2: Uh, I, it is definitely East Coast.
0: Thank you for sharing the excitement about bugs, and thank you for your time, and I hope you have a good afternoon.
2: You too. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 Co-op Radio on Unseated and Ancestral, Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish Territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Turtle Island. Please join us for next week's show on Friday, April 16th, where Elise will be your host and we'll be kicking off our fall fundraising drive. We here at the Animal Voices Radio Show modestly ask you to keep connected with us via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts can also be accessed via Apple Podcast and on Google Play. So you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. You can also join us on Facebook and on Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. If you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing or send along a show segment You can send us a note on Facebook, or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. And yes, we're on Twitter as well, Animal Voices YVR. As a reminder, we're also looking for people to help us produce shows, other people who want to contribute on air, or maybe just online. To close out this week's show, I'm playing a song called The Prong Song by Super Organism. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith, and thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Stay safe inside and remember to be kind to the animals.
1: ever woke up from a daydream realize that the world's gone crazy you people are all the same going blah 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 going bang 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 oh I'm a laid back girl floating sun looking down at the wall oh just sitting in Prawn cause the world war Have you ever kissed a prawn got a cold sore Have you ever seen a prawn case cough Have you ever seen a prawn in a pair of pink